Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke. If you're in the New Testament and don't know where to find that, just start with Matthew, then Mark, and then Luke. Luke chapter 3. We'll read two verses this morning. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Excuse me, verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven... You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. As I was considering this text, I was thinking of possible modern analogies to an event like this. A coming out party of sorts. Maybe someone who burst onto the scene out of nowhere. Or someone who was not previously known to the world And yet, at a moment in time, it became evident that this person was special and significant. And that this person would change everything. Or at least maybe change something significant in their field, in their area of expertise, in their area of activity, or whatever it might be. But in reality, there is simply no comparison. There is no comparison because when Jesus comes onto the scene, he is one unlike any other. He comes onto the scene and he moves into the forefront in the place that was occupied by John the Baptist, not because John was designed to be at the forefront or because John was the greatest person to ever live, but because John was preparing for Jesus. And this is what we've learned about up until this point in chapter 3, the preparation that John the Baptist made for Jesus to come. Now, Jesus arrives. In the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, we learned about the birth of Jesus and John and about their childhood and their growing up. When we came to chapter 3, we find that they're now both grown up and John begins his public ministry in verses 1 through 20 that we've looked at the last three weeks, find John preparing for Jesus' ministry. Now we move to the other part of the preparation for Jesus' ministry, which is Jesus himself preparing for his ministry. Now, in a sense, Jesus had been getting ready for his ministry his entire life. The first 30 years of his life, he was growing, as we learned in chapter 2, in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus was growing up. He was maturing. According to his humanity, he was growing in wisdom and knowledge. He was learning things. He was learning how he was to please God. And he was growing up in that way. But here the true preparation begins. Not just the general preparation, but the formal preparation for his ministry. And it takes place across uh, the end of chapter 3 and into the beginning of chapter 4. 
Uh, Here in the first two verses of this, verses 21 and 22, we learn about Jesus' baptism, his affirmation by the Father and the Spirit of God coming upon him. Then we read some background information about him in the genealogy, uh, telling us that he was about 30 years old and describing his ancestors all the way back to Adam and then to God himself. And then in chapter 4, we'll learn what happened when Jesus was tempted in preparation for his ministry. But for today, what we learn about is what happened at a very significant event at Jesus' baptism. In fact, it is pretty interesting. Jesus' baptism was the most significant baptism that ever took place, and yet it was the least necessary in terms of the actual baptism itself. In fact, in one regard, the baptism wasn't even necessary at all. Jesus did not have to be baptized as his fellow, uh, fellow countrymen did because Jesus did not need to repent. Jesus did not have any sins that had to come and be confessed. Jesus didn't need to turn. He didn't need to go and ask John, what do I need to do to repent? Instead, he was already walking in perfect righteousness, and yet he came to be baptized Anyway, and this serves as his public introduction, not only to John, but also to the world. And it is now all about Jesus. In fact, the way that Luke tells this account emphasizes that point. He is very intentional with this. If you read the other gospel accounts, you'll find the same story in all three of them. Matthew describes it. Mark describes it. John describes it. And we'll look at some of that this morning. But here... When he is describing this, he doesn't even mention John at all. John has already moved off the scene just even by virtue of the fact that when this is being described, only Jesus is mentioned among men. Jesus was also baptized, that glorious passive tense that we like to use. And uh, here he says, this happened to him, not even describing who was responsible for doing it. And so the focus truly now is on none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And it will remain so for the rest of this wonderful gospel account. And I'm excited about this. I hope you are as well. What we're going to find specifically in this text is this. Jesus is endorsed by his Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit in preparation for his ministry. Jesus is endorsed by his Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit in preparation for his ministry. And that this takes place upon the occasion of his baptism. So let's look now at the baptism of Jesus. And we'll begin by looking at the first event to take place place within this event. Jesus being associated with the people. Jesus is associated with the people. Verse 21 tells us this, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. Now, of course, not literally everyone in the nation was baptized, but he's saying this is what everybody was doing. Everybody, so to speak, all kinds of people were coming out to be baptized. And this is what this says Um, uh, in verse 7 of chapter 3, there were crowds who were going out to him to be baptized. Jesus then joins them. He comes to him. Now, there are many, many possible reasons why Jesus felt compelled to do this. 
there are a number of reasons that are given throughout uh, the church history. There are a number of reasons that are even spelled out in other passages in Scripture. Matthew chapter 3, John objects to this and Jesus simply says, you need to permit it because it's necessary at this time to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus comes to be baptized to associate with his people. He shows that he is part of them, even though he doesn't need to have his sins forgiven. So he doesn't need to be baptized in accordance with the forgiveness of sins. Uh, When Jesus comes, he comes along with everyone else. And Luke has a purpose here, which is to show this. He wants to just bring Jesus to this event. He wants to get Jesus into the presence of John, for John to move off the scene, but more importantly, for the events to take place when heaven is opened, the Spirit descends, and the Father speaks. So there is a transfer of focus, and Jesus steps to the forefront. Now, Luke is not primarily concerned about the why, but he does add one important detail, which is that Jesus was praying. So Jesus was baptized, and he was praying He comes up out of the water. He is praying. We don't know what. We don't know why. But it is just an introduction to who Jesus is. Jesus has already been shown to us as someone in chapter 2 who wants to learn from his father. He wants to learn about the things to do with, with God. He wants to discuss those things, talk about those things, to be about his father's business. But Jesus also models for us here one of his many other attributes of godliness, which is that he was a praying person. Now, we don't just do things just because Jesus did them. There are some things that are simply not repeatable. But if Jesus, the Son of God who had no sin, was someone who felt compelled to pray and who made it his practice to pray, so also it should obviously obviously be the case that we who have many more needs and we who are sinful and need to confess our sins and we who are not divine in our nature should go to God and should pray to him as well. But here he was on this occasion praying. And when this happened, something extremely amazing happened. Heaven was opened. The sky opened up above him. And there is this instant supernatural thing going on. Heaven is opened up. We don't get to see what could be seen there. We don't get any picture of what was going on up above. It's really kind of hard to describe. Does this unroll or do the clouds move out of the way or does it change color or does it look like there's a giant hole in the sky? What exactly is going on? That's left unsaid and it's left unsaid everywhere in the accounts of Jesus' baptism and the heavens opening. But we do find that this, uh, that this precedes something very significant in verse 22 which are the things that happen with regard to the Holy Spirit and with regard to the Father. And this announces that something major is taking place. Now, there are two more main events in this passage, and each one of these involves another person of the Godhead, of the Trinity. Notice in verse 22. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. This is the Spirit of God. Then it says, a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you I'm well pleased. You are my son. Now we could reason, even without knowing the content of the words, that if someone is speaking from heaven, generally speaking, we would assume first and foremost that that is none other than God himself. But with the addition of this phrase, 
calling Jesus the Son, it's made very clear that this is the Father who is being referred to here. So he identifies Jesus not just as the Son, but his Son. You are my Son, which leaves only one option, that this is God the Father. What does this mean, then, is going on at this event? Well, what you have is a Trinitarian gathering. You have each of the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, present here and acting at the same time. Not independently of one another, but in complementarity to one another. Each of the three persons of the Godhead, one God existing in three persons. And doing so simultaneously, as they always have and always will. There is a kind of false teaching, a heresy, in fact, which teaches that God is only one person who manifests himself or shows himself as one of the three persons at any given time so that he might decide today he's going to show up as the Spirit or he might show up as the Father or he might show up as Jesus or switch around between them from one second or one moment to the next or one place to the next. This would be a wrong understanding of God. It's a denial of the Trinity. And um, it denies many other truths that don't properly account for this passage. Instead, what we find here is maybe the clearest example of all three persons of the Godhead existing and acting at the same time, even interacting, at least in a couple of cases, with one another. So the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, each being truly and fully God at the same time. They are not the same person, but they are all the same God. And we find this clearly on display here. So you have the father who has directed the plan of redemption, speaking in approval and identification of his son. You have the son who is the mediator, bringing about redemption according to the plan of the father. And then the spirit who, as we'll see, empowers Christ, the son of God, in his ministry of redemption. And that last activity is what we're going to look at next, which is the work of the spirit here. What we find not only is Jesus associated with his people, but also we learn about this happening. Jesus being anointed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus being anointed with the Holy Spirit. And it says the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. This is the Spirit's appearance. The Spirit's appearance. Now the Holy Spirit is by definition what? Spirit. Which means there is no form, there is no body, there is no physical form or even intrinsic appearance at all. So what's going on here is not the Spirit's uh, essential form being visible, but rather this is the Holy Spirit making himself visible in the form of a dove. And so the Spirit descends in the form like a dove so that you can actually see it happening because otherwise... The Spirit would be invisible and no one would even know that this is going on. So the Spirit descends upon him in bodily form like a dove. Uh, this is highlighted in John's Gospel as well. And there's a little bit more that is told about it and the purpose of this. If you look over with me in John chapter 1, you'll see this. John chapter 1, um, which also describes John coming. 
It says in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And so we'll read starting in verse 24. It says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him. But so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. Keep that phrase in mind, by the way. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. What is John saying here? God sent John to minister. He sent him to prepare the way for someone that he knew about in theory, but didn't know the identification of. He didn't know that Jesus of Nazareth was the coming one until he got the sign. God gave him the indicator. The one that you see the spirit descending on a dove out of heaven and remaining upon him, that's the one. He's the guy. That's why he says, I didn't recognize him or I didn't know him, but I came baptizing in water so that Israel might be able to see him, that he would be manifested there. And so now he says, this is the one. This is the one. Now it's difficult to tell for what it's worth whether this was exactly the event that he is describing in terms of the, some of the order of operations here. But uh, it does certainly seem to be the same case where in Luke chapter 3 he's describing what is being described in John chapter 1. The spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and it is then on this occasion or it is this occasion that John is describing. And so he could then tell other people the explanation for why he's baptizing when they come to have a question for him. So this is a marker for John. It indicates for John who is watching this in Luke 3, in fact, who baptizes him and is right there when this happens, it's an indicator that he is the one. This is the coming one. And now John knows. But the appearance is like a dove. And this is the way that he knows and that we know that the Spirit of God came upon him. That's the Spirit's appearance. Let's next consider the Spirit's permanence. The Spirit's permanence. What did John say in John chapter 1? The Spirit descended as a dove and did what? Remained upon him. Remained upon him. Now, why is this important? Well, if you look at the background of Old Testament history, uh, what you'll find is that the Spirit of God was far from inactive in the Old Testament. The Spirit is not merely a New Testament concept, and He is not merely a New Testament actor. Instead, you have a lot going on with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and especially you have this kind of idea of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone and empowering them for a particular ministry that they might do or a particular type of skill that they would have in relationship to serving God. So, for example, in Numbers 11, verse 25... 
talking about Moses. It says, The Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he, he took of the Spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the, seven, or when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. This is uh, not the only time when this happened, but it was an indication that the Spirit of God had come upon these men. They didn't do this again, but it showed that the Lord is actually upon them. Just as the Spirit of God came in bodily form as a dove on Jesus, so you could see that it was him. So also here you can see that the Spirit has come upon these 70 men because they prophesied in response to this. Um, Verse 29 of the same chapter, Moses says, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. He is not selfish or jealous about this gift. In uh, the book of Judges, we read about Othniel, who was a judge of Israel and who judged Israel in the power of the Holy Spirit who came upon him. Judges 3.10. In Judges chapter 14 and 15 and 16, we read about One particular judge who was especially powerful, you may know his name. What is it? Samson. Samson. And Samson uh, was set apart for the Lord from his youth. A razor was never to come upon his head. And in accordance with that, God sent his spirit upon him. So he is reading. We can read here in Judges 14. Uh, If you want to follow along and just track with me, we'll go through this in a couple other passages. Judges chapter 14. Uh, It says, Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. The spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he didn't tell his father or mother what he had done. So he just tears up a lion with his bare hands. This is not, you know, the product of Samson working out a lot. This is the product of instantaneous strength being given by, the, by virtue of the Spirit of the Lord being upon him. In chapter 15, a similar kind of thing happened. When he came to Lehi, verse 14, Judges 15, 14, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire. And his bonds dropped from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. So he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Again, supernatural strength to be able to use what is um, not really intended as a weapon for that kind of activity. And he powerfully worked. Judges 16, we read about his seduction by Delilah, the trickery that... She placed upon him to where she got him to reveal his secret about his hair. She then cut his hair. And it says, um, verse 19, she began to afflict him and his strength left him. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. What we have here, even in someone who had these repeated events, was the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him, but only in a sort of temporary, provisional manner. In other words, the Old Testament manifestation of the Holy Spirit was not like what we talked about last week. Last week, if you were here, you know that we talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the one who would do that. And what that indicates is in New Covenant times, New Testament times, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in a person permanently when they become a Christian. When they come to faith in Christ, Jesus pours out his spirit upon them so that they now are indwelt by the Holy Spirit forever. Well, the Holy Spirit coming upon someone in the Old Testament was not so. It was 
provisional. It did, I mean, he did, the Holy Spirit uh, remained upon some for life, such as with Moses once this had happened. But it wasn't guaranteed and it wasn't always the case. So that you have the account in 1 Samuel 16 of the Holy Spirit departing from Saul and moving to David. Which is what caused David later on when he sinned in Psalm 51 to say, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. We struggle to understand that verse because we think of the Holy Spirit in New Testament terms of permanent indwelling. And for the Spirit to be removed would mean that someone was not saved. In Old Testament times, it wasn't exactly the same. And David was referring to this anointing of the Holy Spirit who came upon him. And he was worried that having sinned against God greatly through adultery and murder, that God might do what he did to Saul and remove this Holy Spirit from David. By God's grace... As far as we can tell, he did not do that. But nonetheless, we do see that conceptually it's possible for this to take place. The Spirit of God to come upon someone for a time or a specific purpose and then to depart. In fact, even the evil Old Testament prophet Balaam, who was an enemy of Israel. In Numbers 24-2, the Spirit of God came upon him to prophesy exactly what God wanted him to say. Even though he was being hostile toward God. In fact, because he was being hostile toward God. And God wanted to use that to bring about this message to bless Israel. Even through someone who was dead set on cursing them. All of this to say that it's not normal for the Holy Spirit to come and to permanently be upon someone in this anointed role. And yet with Jesus, that's exactly what happens. The Spirit of God comes upon him, descends upon him, and now remains upon him forever. Remains upon him. This isn't temporary. This is the beginning of something, but there will be no end. Now, you might be thinking, well, I thought this is the Spirit of Jesus anyway, so doesn't he already have the Holy Spirit? Well, there is certainly a sense in which it's true. It is the spirit of Jesus. And we read about that in Romans 8 where it says the spirit of Jesus dwells in you if you're a Christian. But there's another sense in which there is a reality that according to his humanity, Jesus could use divine empowerment by virtue of the Holy Spirit who would anoint him. Jesus is not just God, but also man, just like you and me, except for not being sinful. And so therefore, he could use Holy Spirit empowerment. And we'll see that this is exactly how he carries out his ministry. When we get back to Luke, and in chapter 4, he's going to say that. Luke tells us that he begins his ministry not just in his own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you look with me in Luke chapter 4, you'll see this in verse, uh, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So this is Jesus' preparation by virtue of the Spirit of God coming upon him. So the Spirit comes upon him permanently. And that leads us to consider then the Spirit's significance. The Spirit's significance. Where is it that we get the title for Jesus? We know his name, Jesus. We know his town that he's from, Nazareth. We could call him Jesus of Nazareth. But what do we call him? We call him the Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. And this is exactly what this concept refers to. There was going to come one from 
promised from Old Testament times who would be anointed with the Spirit and not just anyone who might temporarily or provisionally be anointed with the Spirit, but one who would be defined by this being the case about him all the time. And that anointed one was none other than the Christ. That's where the language comes from. And we've talked about this earlier in the Gospel of Luke. But just by way of reminder, the word Messiah or its Greek equivalent Christ, uh, these words simply refer to this concept of an anointed one. Someone whom the Spirit of God has come upon. And here Jesus is shown to be the Christ. Not because he says, I'm the Christ. Not because someone uses that label of him. Not because God says so here. But because the Spirit comes upon him and signifies that what would be true of the anointed one is now happening. It is now happening. The Spirit's anointing then results in Jesus being recognized as the Christ and it will result in the validation of Jesus before the people because he is attested by God through the miracles the Spirit empowers him to do. Acts 2.22 says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. So here he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Do you think John would be confident in handing off the forefront of ministry to someone when he sees this happening? Of course he would. He recognizes him now. He knows this is the Christ. This is the one. If someone else had come up and said, hey, John, I want to tell people about Jesus, he'd say, no, no, this is my job. If someone else had come up and said, I'm the one, John might say, prove it. Jesus didn't even come up and say, I'm the one. Jesus came and was baptized by the Spirit of God, was anointed, rather, with the Spirit of God as he was baptized. And John knows and is willing to pass off the baton. And so, number four, not only does the Spirit show his significance in that he is anointing the Messiah, but this then results in the Spirit's empowerment, as we've already mentioned. Luke 4.14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And when he goes to his hometown... The place he points to, his very first act of public ministry, is a passage of Scripture that says this in Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He is saying, this is who I am. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Sent me to proclaim release to the captives and so on. Jesus is saying, I am who I am. By virtue of this, this is how you can know. We read in Acts 10, Paul's assessment, uh, excuse me, Peter's assessment of this. Verse 37, you yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, we step back and think for a moment. Uh, there are things that we sometimes need a little bit of help to do, a little bit of empowerment. And uh, we've got our tools for that, don't we? For some of us, it is the wonder drug, caffeine, coffee. We drink coffee because that's what's going to help us push through being sleepy or just kind of needing to get going. Uh, For others, it might be 
some type of favorite food. It might be your music that you listen to. It might be a sort of a pump up talk from someone. I've even seen videos of football players choosing to be smacked in the face to get themselves nice and angry. We hear people say all the time these days, no one believes in us. And they convince themselves that everyone's out to get them. The whole world is against them. Why do they do that? Because they need an ability that goes beyond simply going out and going through the motions. Imagine how much more power is given to a sinless person already perfectly motivated who now has the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon him. Jesus didn't need tricks or motivational tactics. He maybe could drink some caffeine at times. I don't know where he would have gotten it from, but that's not really any kind of needed part of his ministry because he has the power of the Holy Spirit enabling him to do everything that God had for him to do. And so Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit, thereby being identified as the Christ, being prepared for his ministry, being empowered to do all that God had for him. Now, in addition to this, Jesus is not only anointed by the Spirit, but he is also then affirmed by the Father. He is affirmed by the Father. And verse 22 tells us about this. A voice came out of heaven. Now, this is really, in fact, the focus of this entire passage. The way that Luke has uh, written this out, the structure of the language and all of this. This is the main thing that he is driving home of what happened at this event. And it is an affirmation of Jesus. It is someone identifying him, someone with authority and saying, this is the guy. Someone who knows what he is talking about. You know what it's like if you hear something from someone that's not trustworthy, what do you say? Well, I'm not really sure that I believe you about that. Or you might question that. Or you question the sources. But if the most trustworthy person who knows the most about something says something, that's a different story. And here, the Father, none other than the Father himself, identifies Jesus in some very specific ways. Now, there are two simple statements here about Jesus and the Father. We read them. It says, you are my beloved son. That's the first And the second says, in you, I am well pleased. Both are about what and who Jesus is. This is who you are. You're my son and I'm pleased with you. I'm pleased in you. My soul delights in you. By the way, God is said to be pleased by several things. In the New Testament, we learn about pleasing God. But there really seems to be nothing more pleasing to him than the pleasure he finds in his son. These statements both pertain to the relationship that the father and the son have with one another. Both indicate the favor that the son has in the eyes of the father. Now, this is the first of two events in the gospel accounts where the father speaks these words to his son out of heaven. Later on in Luke's gospel and in in, um, Mark and Matthew as well, we read an account of how uh, Jesus gives a sort of preview of the kingdom of God as he is glorified and transfigured in front of three of his disciples. And he takes them up on a mountain to do this. And when he does, uh, these same words are spoken to them. This is my son. In him I'm well pleased. And then the father adds these words at that time. Listen to him. And he has reasons for doing that that we'll talk about whenever we get to those chapters later on in Luke. But here, uh, this, is, this is 
uh, two phrases that are uttered by the Father, and both of them are Messianic Old Testament references. They are references to Old Testament passages that promise or that talk about the Messiah. And this is the first point to consider here, which is Jesus' identity as the Messiah. His identity as the Messiah. A voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son. Let's consider this by looking over at the original place where this is uh, referring to, Psalm 2. Turn with me there if you would, Psalm 2, Psalm 2. This is a, a messianic psalm or a psalm about the anointed one. Let's just read through this together to understand what is in uh, the background as he says these words. And what is he saying? When he says to Jesus, you're my son, what actually is being brought to bear in this conversation? What does he mean when he says this? So the psalm begins this way. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This represents a general statement about the peoples of the world and about the rulers of the world. People in the world don't like what they perceive to be shackles placed upon them by God. They say, let's get rid of what binds us, what constrains us. Let's fight against them holding us captive. They see the rule of the Lord and the rule of his anointed one as a hindrance to what they really should be doing, what they really want, which is for them to rule. And so much of history has been this very thing. God, who rules all things in general, trying to rule upon the earth through his king or through his appointed ruler, and the people on earth are not having it. They don't want that. They don't want to submit to the person that God has placed in charge, or they don't want to rule in the way that God says. They just want their way. This is the state of all mankind. They're not concerned about being subject to God. They think that God is subjecting them to something that's not good. And they see it as shackles and shackling. And so what do they say? Let's fight against God and against his anointed. Now, at this time, there was no uh, Messiah who had come when this psalm is written. This is just a concept of the king of Israel who would be the ruler that God would have. And this is sort of representative of the king in general. There were a number of kings of Israel, of course, a number of kings that took on the Davidic line, the messianic ruler who had come from David. But this just speaks of it sort of in general terms at the moment, saying whoever is ruling on God's behalf, the nations hate that guy and they hate God. Because they think that God is holding them down. So what do they say? Let's get rid of his rules. Let's get rid of his rule. And let's get rid of these shackles and cords. And let's do what we want. In fact, let's try to rule over them. This is what we find when we think about the various kings who would even go directly up against Judah and Jerusalem. And who would fight against the kings of 
Israel during those times in the Old Testament. Well, what is God's response? Is he worried? No. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Why? They can't do anything. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. He says there is a permanent fixing that he has in view of a king who will rule from this geographic location on his behalf. His holy mountain of Jerusalem, of Zion, and it is his king. Now, unfortunately, in many cases, the one who was supposed to serve as the Lord's anointed in Israel did not serve as God's faithful king. And this is ultimately part of why God cast them out and sent them into exile. But here he says, this is what I'm going to do. And in fact, it's so certain that I have put him here. Then he shifts over to the, uh, the perspective of the anointed who has been placed into this role. And it's one particular anointed that he is describing. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. He says, let me tell you as the anointed one what God said to me. What did he say? You're my son. Today I have begotten you. And if you ask me, I'll give you the whole world. It's going to belong to you. And you're going to rule them with this great power. Break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, we know for many reasons that this refers to the Christ, not just the Christ, but specifically to Jesus, who is the Christ. He is identified as this in the book of Revelation as the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. In no uncertain terms, describing him as the fulfillment of this particular promise. He is said to be the one who will have the nations as his inheritance. They will all belong to him and the very ends of the earth as what belongs to him. This earth and nations in this world will belong to Jesus Christ. He will rule over them. And he will do so not just spiritually speaking, but politically. Geopolitically, this is what's going to happen. In fact, it's so sure of a promise here, even Satan recognizes it and tries to tempt Jesus with it. When we get to the temptation of Jesus in Luke 4 and he says, hey, here's all the nations of the earth. They can all be yours if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus knows he's getting these one day, but he doesn't want to take the shortcut. In fact, he has to be faithful to God and he has to be obedient and not worship God instead, or not worship Satan, but instead worship God. But here he is describing one particular person you are my son. You are my son. And this is the single person who then fits this role. There was a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would have a son who would sit upon the throne and sit upon his throne as a descendant. But it was left a little bit more general. We can look at that, in fact, because it's going to be uh, something to understand for the next point here. If you would go ahead and turn over there, 2 Samuel chapter 7. First, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 2 Samuel. And God has made a promise to David. David wants to build God a house. 
God says, no, I'm going to build you a, a different kind of house, which is a lineage, a dynasty, like the house of such and such. We use that terminology even to this day to describe rulers who descend after each other. Second uh, Samuel 7:11, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are completed, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, if you've got careful eyes, just reading through this, you'll notice the back and forth. Did you catch that? Did you catch here what he's describing? At the same time as he goes through this, he is describing things that pertain to what would come shortly after David's life and in the kings that led up to Jesus... And he's also describing what would happen in the ultimate king who would fulfill these things in a permanent form. So, for example, it says that um, in verse 12, uh, I'm going to establish the kingdom of your descendant who comes forth from you. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. Well, David's son Solomon says in the Bible after this, after he has built a temple for God, God has fulfilled his promise in doing this. So we know that at least partial of that fulfillment is Solomon doing that. But there is more than that. Because it says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, Solomon is no longer with us, is he? So he must be talking about further beyond that. In fact, David recognizes that when he asks in verse twenty excuse me, verse 29, that his house may continue forever. And he says in this same chapter that God has spoken to him about the distant future in verse 19, concerning the distant future. Uh, verse 14 says, I'll be a father to him, he'll be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. So clearly in that text, he is not making a reference to Jesus himself as the king because Jesus did not commit iniquity. So again, he is talking about the position and the role more generally. But what's underneath this is one day there will come someone who does rule forever, who doesn't go away, who doesn't die, who doesn't, uh, or at least die and leave his kingdom behind, but one who, like Jesus, lives forever now that he's been resurrected from the dead and who causes this house and this kingdom to endure forever. So this promise to David is for this permanency of a dynasty, of a house. It will have sinful, needy people for a time. But one day there will come a ruler who will rule forever. And as it says here in verse 15, My loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And this leads us to a second brief note on what God tells him in Luke 3. This teaches us not only about Jesus' identity as the Messiah, but also his love as the Son. His love as the Son. Jesus is God's beloved Son. That is not in Psalm 2. It doesn't say, my beloved Son. He just says, you are my Son. 
the word beloved is added to emphasize the love between the father and the son, which comes in a human sense in 2 Samuel 7, 15 about the promise of loving kindness upon the king of Israel, the son of David, and in the divine sense that continues from eternity past as in John 17, 24, Jesus says to the father, you loved me from before the foundation of the world. So God is identifying him here as the beloved son, not just the son as incredible as that is, but as the beloved son. There's a third truth about Jesus that is noted by God's words here. He says, in you I am well pleased, well pleased. We learn about his identity as the Messiah, his love as the son, but also his approval as the servant. His approval as the servant, as God's servant. And you, I am well pleased. A reference to one more Old Testament passage that we can turn to in Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42. Again, these are all the things that are in the mind here of God speaking these things. This is what is in view. These are not just isolated texts, but there is a loaded meaning behind all of these things when they are being spoken. So Jesus is the son, the messianic son that God promises to give the nations to. And he is God's servant. He delights in him. Let's look at Isaiah 42 and read the first few verses. Behold, he says, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one. And here's the language from Luke 3. In whom my soul delights. In whom my soul delights. He says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice, bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. What is true about this one? Well, he is God's chosen one. God has selected him. God has placed his favor upon him. It says that God delights in him. God loves the son. God loves the servant. God loves Jesus. And he does so in a unique and special way. God's spirit is upon him. This has just happened in Luke 3. I have put my spirit upon him. And then it says he will bring justice to the nations. He will bring forth justice to the nations or to the Gentiles. And you may be noticing a theme here about the interaction of the Messiah, not just with the people of Israel, but with all of the people of the nations like you and me. Jesus is not just for his own national people, but he is for anyone who will turn to him in humble faith. In fact, this is what Psalm 2 finishes out by saying, it says that we need to kiss the son or do homage to the son, humble ourselves before him. And it finishes by saying, how blessed are all those who take refuge in him, not just from his nation, but from everywhere. He's going to bring forth justice to the nations. This is what Jesus does. Where are you looking for that to come from? Some of you don't like the injustice going on in the nations or in our nation. I bet there's some things that you could name for me right now that you have talked about with your friends the past few weeks or maybe at least the past few years. And you say, this just isn't right. I don't like this is going on. Have you heard about this going on in this city? 
Have you heard about this? What's happening in our town? Have you heard about what's happening in our government? It's so unjust. It's just wrong. And you feel the urge for God's standard to be lived out. It says Jesus is the one who's going to bring that about. He's going to bring it about. He's going to bring forth justice to the nations. And it says he's not going to be disheartened or crushed, verse 4, until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. He is going to do this. How is he going to do it? Well, he's going to be established as king on God's holy mountain. And then he's going to bring it about. And when he rules the nations, as with the rod of iron. So Jesus is going to bring these things about. He won't be deterred. He won't be discouraged. He's going to be gentle. He's going to be fair. He's not going to crush people just because they're weak or poor. He's going to bring about justice regardless of the circumstance they find themselves in. And so he says, I put my spirit upon him. What does this passage then teach us about the Messiah? Well, it teaches us here that the uh, Messiah was coming. That God had him in mind all along, that he would place his spirit upon him, and that he is going to use him to bring about his purposes in the world. It teaches us that God has not forgotten about Israel, even as rebellious as they had been, but that God has a plan to actually bring about the things that he has promised, not only to them, but also to the nations. As for Jesus here in Luke 3, as we come to the end of this text, what is true about him? Well, first of all, he is clearly and unmistakably identified as the Messiah, even though the word Messiah or the word Christ is never mentioned here. The question comes throughout this gospel and the other gospels, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? And you could point here and say, God says he is. The Holy Spirit upon him says he is. And the works that he's going to do prove that he is. Um. The Spirit's anointing is upon him to prepare him for ministry. And what this means here, not only with the Spirit's anointing, but the Father's affirmation, is that Jesus is much, much more than what people commonly say about him. He wasn't just a guy that was a really good teacher that lived a long time ago. He wasn't even just a prophet among other prophets. But he is unique. He is the only one like this. He is the only son he is the only anointed one, the ultimate king and ruler. And he is uniquely selected by God, loved by God, uniquely approved by God, and uniquely equipped and empowered by God to do the work of salvation that God wants to bring about and the work of establishing God's purposes in the world. So what should Israel, what should we take away from this? Well, Jesus not only is part of the Godhead, the Trinity, one among these three, as we have a proper view of God, but God has approved and affirmed this one. And even before you see anything else he does, this should make you say, do I recognize that this one is unique and special? Or do I come to Jesus when I need maybe some spiritual things, but for the rest of life I just go somewhere else? I'm good as long as I don't have a crisis. I'm good as long as my soul isn't really bothered or I'm not having a big blow up. I'm good unless you name it. Or do you realize that this is the one around whom our entire lives are to revolve? This is the one that God thinks the most of and so should we. This is the one 
who proved who he was. And this is the one that God finds the greatest delight in, and so should we. We have been given the Holy Spirit that Jesus had upon him so we can do things in many ways that are impossible apart from him, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet we are not on the same level as him because this is the anointed one himself. And so we worship him, we praise him, we trust him. So as you go away from this passage, I hope you rightly identify who Jesus is. You're not under any confusion or any illusion about who he is or who he's not. And that you would put your hope completely in him as the Savior and submit to him as Lord. Let's pray together as we finish. Father, thank you for this picture of who Jesus is, this beautiful picture with your words, your spirit, and your son. May we honor, serve, and please him in every way. But starting with this, recognizing and gladly confessing who he is, the Christ, the Son of God, the anointed one, the most unique and the most powerful uh, person that we could ever know and put our trust in. So we pray that we would walk by faith in him and live to serve him in every way. And we pray in his name. Amen.